Our passage this morning is Psalm 119, beginning in verse uh, verse 105. You can open your Bible to that passage. You can find the outline in the bulletin where you can follow along. We have a lot to cover, so we'll just jump in and cover the basics that we've mentioned almost every week in our study of Psalm 119. What we're dealing with here is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. It's a poem built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is week 14. So we've come to letter 14, stanza 14. This is the stanza dedicated to the Hebrew letter noon. N-U-N sounds like N-O-O-N, noon. And if you open your Hebrew Uh, copy of the scriptures, you can see all of the verses in this stanza begin with a word that begins with the Hebrew letter noon. In our particular stanza this morning, eight out of the eight verses here make some reference to the Word of God. And one of the things we've noted is that almost every verse in Psalm 119 makes reference to to the Word of God, the commandments of God, the precepts of God, the statutes of God. And I've told you over and over and over again that those words are largely used interchangeably. Uh, The variation helps make the poem not quite so redundant, but the overarching theme is that God has spoken to His people in the Bible. When you open the Word of God and you read what's written in the Scriptures, you are reading God's self-revelation. You're reading God's very words. So almost all of the 176 verses reference the Bible. If you add up all the verses and all the verses that have omitted and included the Word of God, by my count, after this morning, we're 112 verses in, 109 of those have made reference to God's Word, so that's about 97%. We have a few more verses coming up over the next few weeks that will not mention the Word of God, and we'll talk about those as we come to them. One of the things I want you to note this morning is that the noon stanza is closely related to the mem stanza that we talked about last week. There's places in Psalm 119 where you move from one stanza to the next and there's sort of a new direction being taken. But I feel like this stanza builds off of what we talked about last week. And what we talked about last week is that the Word of God gives us wisdom. Wisdom, to know what to think, to know what to believe, to know how to feel, to know how to live our lives. The Word of God gives wisdom to the people of God. And what we're talking about this morning is closely related to that. Here's the big idea. The Word of God allows the people of God to see what is real and what is true and what is good. The Bible helps us to see what is real and true and good. And so you'll note the verse we read as our call to worship. It's the first verse in this stanza. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God helps you see what's real and what's there and what's not there and the direction that you ought to go and the way that you ought to think and how you ought to feel, how you ought to live your life. The word of God helps the people of God to see. So as we look at this stanza, Verse 105 is sort of the overarching theme verse, and all of the verses that follow bring up examples of things that the Bible helps us to see. It's not a comprehensive list of everything that the Bible helps you see in life, but it's certainly an important list. So let's read this passage, and we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. This is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 105. Word of God says this, your word is a lamp 
to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Father, this morning as your people, we recognize that your word is sweeter than honey from the comb. Father, we're thankful that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see what is real, what is true, what is good. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this stanza from Psalm 119, and we pray that you would help us to understand how this stanza fits into everything else that you've said in the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you think about sight, I found myself thinking this week about the human eye. The human eye is an amazing invention. Uh, It didn't just happen. Someone designed it. Somebody made it. That somebody is God. The complexity of the human eye is one of the most remarkable things that you can ever study. I don't pretend to understand it or be qualified to give you an explanation of it. Uh, But the complexity of the human eye is one example of irreducible complexity that defies Darwin's theory of evolution. You just can't work backwards and have anything that's functional or helpful. It's an amazingly complex part of the body. It's fascinating to read how the eye brings in light and talks to the brain and how the brain controls the eye and the back and forth. It's just absolutely a marvel. It's a wonder. And we're talking this morning about seeing, things that we see. And beyond the scientific uh, awesomeness of what goes on in human sight, you know and I know that human beings love to see things. We love to see things. I'll just give you a few examples. What did everyone in West Texas do a few weeks ago when there was an annular solar eclipse? We all went outside and we put goofy glasses on and we stared up at the sky because we wanted to see it. And you could have gotten online and looked at pictures. Other people have seen it and they've taken pictures and you could see those pictures. But that's not the same as seeing it yourself. People wanted to see this thing. Uh, What do we do with pictures? Now they're not on a fold-out thing in your billfold, but they're on your phone or they're on Facebook or they're on social media. They're memes or they're pictures of your grandkids or the videos. What do we do with all those things? We share them. We send them in text messages. We put them on our Facebook and Instagram uh, accounts because we've seen it and we want someone else to see it. I know it's a fact within my own family if, if we're sitting at dinner like we were last night and somebody has their phone and says to the person next to them, hey, look at this. Everyone on the other side of the table wants to see it. I got to see it. Turn it around. Show me. I want to see it. I want to see it. We love to see things. If you lived through the 90s, you remember these magic eye books? 
and these magic eye posters. I remember them at the Amarillo Mall as sort of a kiosk, and they had these great giant posters out there. And we would stand there as young teenagers, and we would look at these things, and they would say to us, if you look just right, you'll see a hidden picture. And I'll be honest with you, I have never seen anything in a magic eye book or poster. I'll also be honest with you, I have pretended to see lots of things. I've stood there at the mall or looked at the book and said, oh, I see it. I see it. You, you don't see it? Oh, I see it. I'm not sure there's anything to see, but we all pretended like we could see these things. You know, in the Bible, seeing is often connected to knowing. Seeing is connected to knowing. So there's times where the Bible talks about God seeing a thing, God going down to see a thing, God's eyes ranging through the whole earth to see a thing. You understand that's not talking about God's anatomy, it's talking about God's omniscience, saying that He knows what human beings are up to, He knows what's taking place on the earth. There's other verses in the Bible, Old Testament and New, that talk about human beings seeing a thing. And when you see a thing... You know a thing. Seeing is connected to knowing. And the psalmist is picking up on this idea of sight, something that we probably take for granted if you're a seeing person. And the psalmist is saying, you know, the Bible helps you to see. It's like you're in a dark place, a dark room, and then suddenly you have a light. You have a lamp. It shows you what's there, and then you know What's there? And what we're talking about this morning is that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It helps us to see what is real and what is true and what is good. It helps us to know the truth that we need to live in this world. So we'll ask and answer one simple question this morning. According to the noon section of Psalm 119, what does God's Word help us see? Number one, God's Word helps us see the truth about righteousness. How do we know what is right, what is fundamentally right in this world? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 106, he says, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. There's a whole stanza coming that emphasizes this, so we won't say too much, but I want you to note that when the psalmist thinks about what is righteous in this world, What is the ultimate standard of rightness? He does not look inside himself. He does not look outside to see what the world is doing, but he looks to God's rules, to his word, to what God has spoken to his people in Scripture. And he says that is the ultimate standard of righteousness, your righteous rules. 2008, Oprah Winfrey delivered the commencement address at Stanford University. It's about a 30-minute speech. I watched way too much of it this week after I was directed to it. About halfway through the speech, she gave some advice to the graduates of Stanford, highly educated people. Here was her advice. She said, how do you know when you're doing something right? That's a question about righteousness. How do you know when you're doing something right? How do you know that? Well, what I know, Oprah said, is that feelings are your GPS system for life. When you're supposed to do something or not supposed to do something, your emotional guidance system lets you know. Trick is to learn to check your ego at the door and start checking your gut instead. Every right decision I've made, 
every right decision I've made has come from my gut, and every wrong decision I've ever made was a result of me not listening to the greater voice of myself. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. You understand that's the plot line of every Disney movie that's ever been made. You understand that's the subtext, sometimes the overt text, of most social media YouTube influencers. You just do whatever feels right, and if it doesn't feel right, then you don't do it. The ultimate standard of righteousness, we're told over and over and over again, is our gut, our feelings. As Christian people, we come to Psalm 119, and we're reminded that God's rules... God's word, God's precepts, God's testimonies, God's ways, God's commandments are righteous. And that this ultimate standard of righteousness exists outside of us. It is not determined or defined by us. And yet we live in a culture where the dominant way of thinking is you just follow your gut. You follow your emotions you follow your feelings. And you understand, I hope, that that is a recipe for cultural, societal, moral, civilizational disaster. And there's an older wisdom to be found here in Psalm 119 that says God's rules, God's word, is actually the ultimate standard for righteousness. You can see like the world sees. or You can pick up this lamp and let it show you what is real and what is true, and what is good. What does God's Word help us to see? Number two, God's Word helps us to see the truth about suffering. Verse 107, he says, I'm severely afflicted. He said that multiple times in Psalm 119, if you've been tracking with us, he talks about affliction or being afflicted quite regularly. It's a general sort of big catch-all term that describes any sort of suffering that you might experience in your life. And he doesn't explain here in verse 107 how he's afflicted. He just says that it's severe. I am severely afflicted, and he's looking to the Lord to give him life according to his word. We've talked about this, and I think it's worth repeating. Christianity is often attacked on the moral question or the philosophical question of the problem of evil. And people often try to back Christians into a corner and say to them, if you believe there's a God, and if you believe He's good, and if you believe He's all-powerful, how in the world do you explain all of the evil and the suffering and the affliction that exists in the world? And often Christians feel very anxious about trying to answer that question. Now, I don't want to pretend like it's an easy question to answer. I just want to say to you with great confidence that I think the Bible's answer to that question is far better than any other worldview's answer to that question. Can I just give you a few examples of how other worldviews answer this question of how do you explain suffering in the world? We could start with Hinduism. Hinduism talks about dharma and karma. Your dharma is your basic lot in life. It's based on your previous life, and your lot in the next life will be based on how you handle your dharma in this life, and that process is described as karma. And Hindus basically say, well, if you're suffering now, it's because you did something wrong in the last life, and you're just going to go round and round till you can get out of this cycle of suffering. That's their answer. Buddhism. 
We talked about this, I think, last week or maybe the week before. Buddhists say there is no suffering. It's all just an illusion. And if you could just get it through your thick skull that it's all an illusion, it's like a daydream, it's a phantom, it's not a thing, then you'd be free from it. What do the Darwinists say, the secular humanists? They say, really, there is no such thing as suffering. There's only the survival of the fittest in this process that just plays out over millions and billions on however many inions of years you want to insert into that process. But it's not right or wrong or good or bad. It's just tooth and claw. It's the survival of the fittest. The average person in the Bible Belt falls into a category, sociological category we've talked about before called moral therapeutic deism. Believes that there is a God, but he's distant. He's up there. He's really not that involved in our daily lives. But when he gets involved in our daily lives, it's to punish us for not being moral. Because the goal of moral therapeutic deism is essentially to be nice to everyone. And if you're not nice to everyone, then God might have to intervene, although he doesn't usually intervene, but he might intervene to punish you or to discipline you. You know people that think this way. Something goes wrong in their life, and immediately they say, well, what did I do wrong to deserve this? What is God trying to punish me for? What is God trying to get even with me for? Those are a few answers to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. You need to understand the Bible has a much more complex, comprehensive, nuanced understanding of suffering. And you don't have to like the Bible's understanding of suffering, but as a Christian person, it's not anything that's a weakness in our worldview. It's actually, I think, a far better answer that resonates with our experience in this world more than these other explanations. So what does the Bible have to say about suffering? I'm just going to give these to you quickly, and we're going to move on. Number one, the Bible says suffering is the result of the fall, human rebellion, and that it is universal and unavoidable. Number two, the Bible says that sin and foolishness always have consequences. And sometimes your suffering is your own doing. You live in a moral universe. God has made it so. And there are consequences to sin and to folly. Number three, the Bible says that God actually used suffering, the suffering of His Son, Jesus, to secure the salvation of His people. This is one of the beautiful parts of the Christian worldview is that Christians understand that Jesus understands suffering because he suffered for the sins of his people. Number four, the Bible says that God uses suffering to make us Christ-like and to make us mature. The Bible says in multiple places you should actually rejoice in your sufferings because God is at work in your life through them. Lastly, the Bible says there will be a future without suffering. Is all of that packed into verse 107? No. But in talking about affliction, he's talking about suffering. And you need to understand that the biblical idea of suffering and affliction and difficulty in life is actually a better answer, the best answer, especially when you compare it to how other worldviews answer this question. The Bible helps you to see this. Number three, what does God's Word help us to see? Helps us to see the truth about worship. Look what he brings up in verse 108. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Accept my free will offerings of praise. He's singing. He's acknowledging God's greatness and His glory. And he wants to be a student. He wants to be taught 
God's Word. He wants to sit under the authority of God's Word. Sounds like worship, right? Gathered worship, corporate worship. The people of God come together, they sing praises to God, they sit under the authority of His Word. This book will reframe the way that you think about worship. It will shape and direct and help you see the truth about worship. And I just want to give you one example about how Americans typically see worship. There's a an Instagram account I follow, the guy's actually a rancher, and he's a believer, and he posts videos about his family and his life and all these ranching things that they do, and it's mildly entertaining, and it's not too filthy. So I like to watch this guy, and uh, he talks about all sorts of stuff. He's a deacon in his church, and it's interesting because he knows lots of things about ranching that I don't know, but this last week he fielded a question, and the question was, why should people go to church? And I thought to myself, well, I know something about that. I don't know about calves and ranching and growing uh, alfalfa out in the field, but I know something about that, so I wanted to see what he had to say. I like this guy. I don't think his answer was bad. I just think it was missing something really important. Why should people go to church? First thing he said, regrettably, was predictable. He said, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to go to church if you want to go to heaven someday. It's not mandatory, it's not essential. I would agree that you don't have to go to church in order to go to heaven, but I hate the way evangelicals start the conversation saying, well, it's really optional. I don't even know why we're doing it. It's not that big a deal. You don't even have to do it. Do it if you want to. You don't have to go. Number two, he said, if you go to church, you'll find a good support system for life. People there to encourage you and be your friends and talk to you and You can learn from them, and they can learn from you. You'll find a good support system. It's a really good tool to have in your life. It will help you in your life. And that was the answer. Now, none of those things are wrong. Going to church doesn't automatically make you a Christian. And you should find a support system of people at church to walk with you through life. And it will make a difference in your life, I believe. But can we just talk about the fundamental reason that God's people ought to go to church? Psalm 119, 108. So that they can offer free will offerings of praise to the Lord. So that they can worship God and acknowledge His greatness and His glory. Number one. Number two, that we might be taught His word, His rules. That we might sit under the authority of His word. You understand the way this gentleman answered the question, assumed, like many people do in our country, that church is a consumer good. And what he tried to do is sell it. I'm going to tell you all the perks, all the benefits. What can you get out of it? How will it help you? Now, all the things he said are true in and of themselves, but they miss the fundamental reason that the people of God for centuries and for millennia have gathered together to worship, and they've gathered together to worship, to sing praises to the Lord, and to sit under the authority of His Word. This book will reframe the way that you think about worship so that you don't see worship as a consumer good, but you see it the way God's Word would have you to see it. What does God's Word help us to see? Number four, God's Word helps us to see the truth about the brevity of life. Verse 109, Psalmist says, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. 
That was the phrase I spent the most time trying to understand this last week. I hold my life in my hand. Most of the commentators think that in the original Hebrew, this is some sort of idiom that refers to the brevity of life. I'm holding my life in my hand. It's such a small, tiny, fragile, fleeting thing that it's almost like you could just hold it in your hands. Uh, In an idiomatic way in English, we might say, life goes by in a flash. It doesn't necessarily mean lightning crashes and your life is over, but it's an idiom, and you understand what I mean. It goes by in a flash. Or I might say it goes by in a blink. You blink, and your kids grow up. It goes by that quick. I hold my life in my hand. He's talking about the brevity of life, and the Bible helps you to see the truth about that. There was a great philosopher who lived in the 1980s. His name was Ferris Bueller. He said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. He's right. It moves quick. We talked about this on Wednesday nights just a few months ago when we worked through the book of Ecclesiastes and we listened to a truly great teacher, Koheleth, the preacher, who starts off his book saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we talked about that word vanity is the Hebrew word hebel. That means smoke, vapor, mist, breath. That's what your life is like. That's what everything under the sun is like. James, the brother of Jesus, said it like this. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Life is short and it does move fast. Our culture wants us to see it differently. Our culture wants us to think that we can prolong our lives indefinitely if we have the right mix of pills and the right diet and the right exercise regimen. Our world wants us to think that we can mask the effects of aging, age-defying serum. You just have the right cosmetics or the right procedure or the right injection. You can push back aging. Our world increasingly hopes to live forever in some sort of digital platform. Maybe we could upload our consciousness into some sort of cyber world and we'll just continue forever. We won't have a body, but there will be in the matrix or whatever. The Bible helps you see the truth. It's that you hold your life in your hands. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity, hebel, it's all smoke. Your life is a mist that appears and then it's gone. It's destined for men and women to live and then to die once and then to face judgment. That's the biblical truth about the brevity of life, and the Word of God helps you to see that. What does the Word of God help us to see? Number five, I think it helps us see the truth about temptation. This is verse 110. Psalmist says, The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. He's talked about the wicked in this psalm before. That was part of the song that Tyler and Grace wrote, the wicked persecute me without cause. And at times when he talks about the wicked, he's talking about persecution. He's talking about people who are openly, actively, directly out to get him, to stop him, to hurt him, to bring him down. 
I don't think that's the exact thing that he's describing here. I think what he's talking about with the wicked in this snare is temptation. This word snare in the original language refers to a trapping net that you would use to catch an animal out in the wilderness. If you know anything about catching animals in the wilderness, and all I know is learn from YouTube videos, you try to camouflage the net. You don't want the animal to see the net. You don't want them to know that they're being trapped. You try to hide it. You try to be subtle with it. You try to be discreet with it. And he says, the wicked are trying to get me in a trapping net, in a snare. He's talking about temptation. There will be times in your life when temptation meets you at the front door and just punches you right in the face, and you know this is temptation. For every one of those experiences, I think there will be a thousand experiences like that of Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent came, not to start a war directly and openly with the Lord, but he came with a snare. He came with a trapping net. He came with a question. But before he ever contradicted the Word of God, he just had a question about the Word of God, and he just twisted it just a little bit. It was a snare. And Adam and Eve fell for it because they did not take their stand on the Word of God. Contrast that with Jesus, who was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, and three times responded by saying, It is written. It is written. It is written. Even when the devil quoted Scripture back to Jesus with a twist and a perversion, Jesus stood on the Word of God. He saw the snare for what it is, and the Word of God will help you. Only the Word of God will help you to see the truth about temptation. What does God's Word help us to see? Number six, the truth about eternity. This is verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. The key word here is heritage. Some translations opt for the word inheritance. As best I can tell, this word in the Old Testament is almost always used about land. Almost always. It's used in God speaking through Moses to the Hebrew people talking about the promised land. Saying that they have a heritage. They have an inheritance. And what he's talking about is this land that he's about to bring them into. A few times... The Old Testament uses this word where God is speaking and He calls Israel His heritage. Israel is God's inheritance. That's His hope. But most of the time it talks about land. This is a unique use because the psalmist says that God's testimonies are His heritage forever. He's looking to the future. He's looking to eternity. And he's thinking about what he's going to get in the end. What's in it for him? And the thing that he wants in the end, the thing that he hopes for in the end, is not just a piece of real estate. It's not a big pile of money. It's not a great name or a great legacy. What he hopes for in the end to inherit is God's Word. Why? Because he understands that God's Word reveals God to his people. And he knows that if he can end up with nothing else, but he inherits the Word of God, Then he gets God. What does God's Word help us see? One last truth. God's Word helps us see the truth about obedience. Obedience. 
This is verse 112. Psalmist says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Before you close your Bible, I want you to look at verse 112 with me. Because I want you to notice what the psalmist says about obedience here. This is a powerful verse in thinking about the obedience that God demands from his people. First of all, the psalmist says that obedience has to be intentional, not accidental. Because he says there is going to be inclination. He inclined himself towards obedience. Secondly, he talks about obedience being genuine. Not only is he going to incline himself, but he's going to incline his heart. It's not just going to be an external going through the motions, but from his heart, he's inclining himself towards obedience. This obedience, thirdly, is defined by God's Word. I incline my heart not to follow my gut or my feelings or my emotion, but I incline my heart to perform your statutes. It's intentional. It's genuine. It's defined by God's Word, and it's also got to be perfect because notice what he says, he's going to do it forever to the end. It's got to be a perfect obedience. And I think this is a good place just to hit pause for a second. This is a good place for you and me to think about how we interpret individual verses in our Bibles. If you take Psalm 119, 112, and you ignore everything else in the Bible, you ignore the rest of this stanza, you ignore the rest of Psalm 119, you ignore the book of Psalms, you ignore the Old Testament, you ignore everything from Genesis to Revelation, and you only look at this verse, ignoring everything else, you might walk away saying, what God demands of us and my only hope for being with Him in the end is that I do what He says here, that I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I have to be obedient, and it's got to be intentional, and it's got to be genuine, and it's got to be defined by God's Word, and it's got to be perfect, and it's got to be enduring. Have you done that? Have I done that? None of us have done that. Lucky for you and lucky for me, we not only have Psalm 119, 112, but we also have the whole Mem stanza. And we understand that in this stanza, he's showing us things that the Bible helps us to see, the truth about obedience. Not only do we have this stanza, but we have Psalm 119, a whole chapter, a longest chapter in the Bible. It's about the Bible itself, and we have it in the book of Psalms a book that includes confession and repentance, and we have it in the Old Testament, and we have it in the Scriptures as a whole. We don't have just one verse. We have the full counsel of God's Word. If all you had was this verse, you may say, well, God's given us rules, and we better keep them, and that's the end of it. If you take all of God's Word into consideration, you understand God has given us rules. There's rules in this book. And he does expect his people to keep them perfectly, genuinely, intentionally. But you also understand that we have fallen far short of God's glory. That we've sinned, we've transgressed, we've committed iniquity, we've fallen short in all of these ways. And the good news for you and me is that the, book, the Bible, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is not just a list of rules, but it's a story. It's a story about a God who created people in His image, people who rebelled against their Creator, and a gracious 
kind, merciful God who did something to save His people. It's a gospel story. And so we end with this question and these answers. According to the entirety of Holy Scripture, what does God's Word help us to see? Well, number one, it helps us to see that God is holy. And number two, it helps us to see that we're sinful. We've broken God's rules. Number three, it points us to the truth that Jesus is the answer. Our obedience is not the answer, but Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection is the answer. The most important part of the song that Tyler and Grace wrote that we just sang was the part towards the end where it talked about Jesus coming to fulfill the law of Moses in our place and standing in our place. He was righteousness for us. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. The call on our lives is to repent and believe. So look, I want you to understand each verse in Psalm 119. I want you to understand the noon stanza, and I want you to understand the entirety of the chapter in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, but I also want you to understand the story of the Scriptures. But I want you to have a myopic view of God's Word, but I want you to see not just the trees, but the forest. And I want you to see the good news of the gospel, even as it's reflected in Psalm 119. My prayer for you this morning, and my prayer for you this last week has been this. You can walk away from this stanza, and that your testimony would echo the testimony of the man that Jesus healed, blind man, who said this, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see.